Hello, America. Welcome to the Muni Lowdown Podcast. My name is Paul Graves, and I'm the managing editor for DebtWire Municipals. I'm coming to you from Boston, but have some of our talented journalists joining me. Just a note that we're recording on the afternoon of Thursday, August 1st. From the Windy City, we have Caitlin Devitt. Caitlin, what's on your menu? Hi, Paul. I'm going to be talking about the lawsuit between Preston Hollow and Naveen over, over business practices in the high-yield muni bond market. And in our D.C. office, we have Chuck Stanley. Chuck, what's on your plate? Thanks, Paul. So I'll also be talking about the trial in that Preston Hollow uh, Nuveen lawsuit. And I'll also be talking about the Chapter 11 bankruptcy filing from Inverness Village, an Oklahoma continuing care retirement community. And in our New York office, we have Patrick Ferguson. Pat, what's on tap for you? This week, we'll be taking a quick look at the Vogel nuclear plants, the only nuclear plants under construction in the U.S., and efforts to privatize two municipal utilities, one that has ties to the Vogel plant and another that has or had ties to a nearby nuclear project that hasn't been as successful. And also in our New York office, we have our editorial intern, Joy Yang. Joy, what's your topic? I'll be discussing the recent cyber attacks on municipalities as well as the impact of these attacks. All right. Well, let's jump right into it. Obviously, a lot of attention has been focused on the muni market with this trial between Nuveen and Preston Hollow. And we have a, a tag team for you here between Ch- Caitlin and Chuck to give you more details. First, start off with Caitlin. Maybe you can give us some more background uh, and lead up to the trial, Caitlin. So Preston Hollow is a relatively small and relatively young um, firm that that uh, deals in the in the high yield market, you know, student housing, hotels, other kind of traditional um, high yield, unrated or junk rated muni bond deals. And they sued Naveen in late February on the 28th of February of this year after noticing a drop in business and hearing rumors that Naveen was trying basically to what they say was to shut them out of the market. Um, They brought four claims. There was torturous interference with contracts, torturous interference with business relations, defamation and violations of um, the New York Donnelly Antitrust Act. The Nuveen made a motion to dismiss, but two, and the judge, um, who Chuck will talk about later, got rid of two of the claims, but two remain. It's torturous interference with business relations and the antitrust claim. So that's what went to trial this week. Um, as part of their original claim, Preston asked for an injunction that ordered Nuveen to stop the conduct and order the firm to rectify the harm already done, not, not, with, monetary, um, not with a monetary settlement, but by withdrawing and disavowing retaliatory threats that they said Nuveen was making. They also asked that Nuveen be required to adopt supervisory procedures to ban future misconduct. The case, as you said, has been closely watched by market participants. It really gives us an insider view of the way the high yield market sort of functions, how people talk to each other and how deals get done and how deals get shopped. Um, it's especially interesting now because everybody's sort of desperate for paper, as we know. And there's a bunch of um, transcripts of audio recordings, the actual audio recordings it sounds like were played in court. And, um, and there's been transcripts of those that were filed as court documents. Those are really at the heart of the case their conversations between Nuveen employees, including their head of high yield, John Miller, who's also named in the suit, and, um, and employees of various banks, Deutsche Bank and Goldman Sachs and others, 
in that Preston says those audio recordings really show how Nuveen was trying to organize a boycott against the smaller firm. Thanks, Caitlin. So, Chuck, I think first I want to note that this trial is being held in a very lovely but remote location of Georgetown, Delaware. <laughs> so, and you were there on Monday and Tuesday. Tell us more about what happened at the trial. Sure thing. Yeah, as you mentioned, the trial was held in beautiful Georgetown, Delaware. And I think the centerpiece of the case was really those uh, audio recordings uh, that Caitlin referenced of calls between Nuveen's Muni trading desk and broker-dealers, mostly during December of last year. This was following two kind of high-profile placements that Preston Hollow did for Roosevelt University in Chicago and Howard University in Washington, D.C., And so in the wake of those placements, uh, these calls were made in which you can hear uh, Nuveen's muting team really pressing the underwriters hard on their business with Preston Hollow, and in some cases threatening to, as they say, put the underwriters in the box if they keep doing business with Preston Hollow. And the meaning of that term, in the box, was the subject of a lot of debate and discussion throughout the, the course of the proceedings. But as some of the statements were even more direct than that, uh, there's instances where uh, John Miller, who again Caitlin described earlier as Nuveen's head of municipals, he explicitly says, uh, I think it was to uh, somebody from Goldman Sachs, either you're going to do business with Nuveen or you're going to do business with Preston Hollow because it can't be both. And, you know, that sort of stark choice uh, was really described from a number of witnesses as what would be a no-brainer because Nuveen is... Uh, the largest buyer of high-yield municipal debt in the market. And so if you're a J.P. Morgan or a Morgan Stanley, all of these you know, really large uh, broker-dealers, if they're put in a situation to decide whether they're going to continue doing business with one, you know, their biggest generator of revenue or continue doing deals with Preston Hollow, which accounts for a much smaller uh, fraction of their business, they're probably going to stick with Nuveen. Uh, there's also discussions between Miller and uh, another member of the Muni desk with Deutsche Bank, which is the primary source of financing for Preston Hollow. And in that discussion, um, you, you can hear Miller and, um, and the portfolio manager in, in separate conversations uh, really pressing Deutsche Bank to stop providing financing for Preston Hollow on some of these deals. So those Auto recordings sound pretty damning. What was their defense? Well, Nuveen, uh, they say that this is just sort of how people in the market talk. Uh, they say there's a lot of business done over the phone. Uh, these actors are very familiar with each other. They speak a lot. The conversations frequently get heated. And so they say what may sound like threats uh, to the underwriter's business are really just posturing and exaggeration to establish a position in what they uh, describe as, you know, a debate between two parties. Uh, they also claim that when they talk about not doing business with Preston Hollow, they were really complaining about what they saw as a lack of transparency in the type of deals that the underwriters had been doing with Preston Hollow. So they were saying they're not pressing, you know, J.P. Morgan or Goldman Sachs to forswear any business with, Pre- with Preston Hollow, but they're saying that they didn't like that in these cases they 
Nuveen and other actors in the market weren't seeing the deals in advance, and they weren't maybe getting an opportunity to put together competing offers. So beyond explaining the comments they made, what was the extent of their defense? Well, they also attacked the antitrust angle of of the case, essentially arguing that the market for underwriting is way too open for a boycott of 12 broker-dealers to make a difference, and that Preston Hollow could have continued to do business with any number of underwriters, um, even if these, these 12 largest underwriters completely cut them out of the market. And in fact, they showed that Preston Hollow had done business with you know, more than 40 different broker-dealers in the past couple of years. But Preston Hollow presented their own expert economist who said that even though the size of, of the, or I'm sorry, the, uh, the number of broker-dealers in the market is very large, these 12 are so far apart, both in their influence and their size, that their ability to generate interest in major public financing deals really sets them apart. Now, another point of contention was what's called the relevant market for Preston Hollow services. Basically, the point of antitrust law is to protect markets and not uh, necessarily any particular actors. And so what Nuveen's experts said was that even if Preston Hollow was somehow pushed out of business as a result of their muni team's actions, issuers wouldn't be significantly impacted because they still have a number of competitors to choose from when they go to market. Now, Preston Hollow, on the other end, argues that they offer a unique set of services. They have a business model that really relies on providing these complex, narrowly tailored financing options that they say is an innovation in the market and that issuers would be deprived of if broker-dealers declined to let them know that these services exist. And so that, I mean, that, those were the main crux of the argument. And I think that if things go Nuveen's way, that relevant market argument may be the one that, that really sways things. Thanks, Chuck. So, Caitlin, simultaneously this week, you wrote a Forbes blog post on some of your thoughts around the Nuveen trial. Tell us a little bit more about your thinking and what you wrote. You know, what Chuck covered is the trial and, and sort of the, in the Forbes post, sort of the point a little bit was separate from the legal outcome, where we were raising the question of how ethical this behavior was when you look at all of these pages of these transcripts of the audio recordings, and and whether firms with you know with such large market influence like Naveen should be allowed to dictate um, sort of the terms of which other broker dealers or other um, investment firms like you know, that Preston Hollow how they do business. Um, you know, sort of like, well, if Naveen doesn't like Preston Hollow and the way they do their business, which is, you know, sort of what Naveen was saying, some, a, a lot of the transcripts show them saying that they just don't like Preston Hollow's deals. They think they're, um, they, you know, what they would say, don't pass the smell test, quote unquote. Um, these are the 100% private placements that Chuck was referring to that Preston Hollow often brings. Um, so if Naveen's going to say that about Preston Hollow, who's to say that they won't like another competitor's behavior next? And so, you know, the market's self-regulated. It's real difficult to, po- to police. And Nuveen, we see in these transcripts, sort of acting almost as a regulator, saying, you know, we don't like these deals. We don't want these deals coming to market. Um, and also, just because of the size difference of the firms, Nuveen, 
um, being the biggest, as Chuck said, and, and Preston Hollow being so small, it really um, raises question of fairness for the market when you have this um, sort of quasi-ultimatum presented to broker-dealers about you take us or you take them. Um, you know, broker-dealers are going to be hard-pressed to say no to Nuveen as the biggest shop on the block. So you, so the force was just kind of raised questions about that. And then, you know, we sort of talked about the fact that it takes on a little bit more important importance because it is this is a, a market funded with public money. So, you know, if if there's deals out there or if the market's a little unfair, possibly a little um, run a little less efficiently because of certain ethical questions or uh, behavior, then that could end up translating into, you know, for a student housing deal, maybe higher tuition for the students. If there's, it's a, there were a lot of dirt deals, this could be higher tax rates for residents. So just the fact that it's public money kind of um, lends a little bit more urgency to the whole debate. Thanks, Caitlin. And for those interested, you can go to Forbes.com backslash sites, S-I-T-E-S backslash that wire to find her post. It's called Fight Over High Yield Muni Bonds Raises Questions of Ethical Behavior. So this is something we'll definitely be following. And Chuck, when is a decision, when is the judge expected to rule? So it should be at least late August. The counsel for both sides still have to give their closing arguments uh, in written form, and there are a few other procedural manners that will have to take place over the course of the next month or so before we get a decision. All right. Let's keep it moving, Patrick. Nuclear... A nuclear plant, uh, or a nuclear project, I should say, the Vokta one, uh, has been in the news before for us. What's going on? So this week, Georgia Power, uh, the lead uh, on the project and majority owner, owner, ordered the first nuclear fuel load uh, for the Vogel nuclear plant project, specifically for Unit 3. So just as a reminder, the Municipal Electric Authority of Georgia, or MIEG, is a co-owner of the plant, as well as Oglethorpe uh, Power and Dalton Utilities, owned by the city of Dalton. So that was a, a big news point this week. Also, uh, the uh, investor-owned utility, Georgia Power, said it, it still expects the project to be done um, on time. This is their most recent projection in November in 2021 and in November in 2022. So those are for the respective uh, nuclear reactors. But it's interesting. So a day before, the Georgia Public Service Commission said in a memo uh, that Georgia Power would have a tough time meeting that deadline, and it was concerned about uh, possible cost overruns. So if we take a look back, remember this project project has ballooned from about $14 billion to, to $28 or almost $28 billion. Um, a day after, Georgia Power executives said in an earnings call uh, with investors saying, look, we're still going to meet our deadlines. You know, we respect the um, Public Service Commission's viewpoint, but we disagree with them. Another utility with ties to the Vokto project, JEA. What's going on with them? Yeah, so JEA, so you remember it had a, as a power purchase agreement with MIEG, 
and so it's uh, uh, tied up in that project. But the Jacksonville, Florida-based public utility hired four advisory firms to assist in its efforts to possibly sell the utility. It selected J.P. Morgan, Morgan Stanley, so two financial services companies, and Pillsbury Winthrop Shaw Pittman, a law firm, and Foley and Lardner, another law, law firm. So some of the requirements that they set out that these advisors seek in a possible sale, uh, the city would have to net or have to come away with $3 billion. Uh, the sale would have to provide uh, the future utility would have to provide renewable energy to the city and the public school system, 100% renewable by 2030, and the new owner would also have to protect the retirement benefits or adhere to the retirement benefits that JEA has given their employees, and the new owner would have to take over the downtown headquarters that JEA recently secured in the last, last two or three months. Um, so, so this is falling back. So the idea of selling JEA has been talked about for about a, for a couple of years, um, but while JEA had that had a lawsuit with MEAG, um, some of that died down. But a, a report released in December of last year estimated that the utility could fetch between 6.3 and 7.5 billion dollars uh, on the market. Um, so it's interesting to see uh, um, what's going to come out of that. And we have a kind of similar situation in South Carolina, right? Yeah, a lot of a lot of nuclear plants. One, this one's still going on, and another one that uh, was abandoned a couple years ago. So the South Carolina Department of Administration has also hired uh, advisors regarding a possible sale of the its or a public utility on there, the South Carolina Public Service Authority, also known as Santee Cooper. So it looks like it's a muni utility sale year. Uh, these advisors include uh, Mollis and Company, which would be the lead financial advisor, Gibson, Dune, and Crutchner, a legal advisor, Energy and Environmental Economics, which will be, uh, advise on utility policy and, and act as a consultant. So if you remember, earlier this year, state legislators approved legislation that puts the Department of Administration, kind of a unique uh, state department um, um, in, in South Carolina as the lead for the process to suss out bids uh, for a possible sale of the utility and and then the department is supposed to have proposals ready to submit to Congress by January 15th of next year. Uh, Sandy Cooper will also have an opportunity to present its own plan uh, to reform its business and so legislators can, can weigh those. And just a reminder, so then Sandy Cooper has uh, four and a half billion dollars uh, in debt related to the Sumner nu- nuclear project. Um, All right, Pat. Thanks. Chuck, let's swing back to you because you also cover continuing care retirement communities, better known as CCRCs. And there's one you wrote about recently, Inverness Village. What's going on there? Inverness Village is a uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma CCRC. And uh, they recently filed for uh, Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection last week in order to facilitate a sale of its assets and resume accepting new residents. So what were some of the issues that led to the bankruptcy? Well, Inverness opened in 2003, and during that time, it's relied heavily on financial support from its sole corporate member, Asbury Communities, Inc. And that's a Maryland-based operator with six other CCRCs located in multiple states. 
Uh, over the years, the Inverness has received about $45 million in financing from Asbury. But in 2017, the company announced that it wasn't going to provide new financial support. Now, a big challenge for Inverness is competition. Uh, right now, it has three major competitors in the Tulsa area. And as we've seen in a number of other cases with troubled CCRCs, when there's more competition than the market will support or than was anticipated when the CCRC first launched, that can really create uh, pressure, both making it difficult to lure in uh, new residents at, com at competitive rates or at rates that the CCRC needs to, to remain profitable, and it can also push up labor costs as multiple communities compete for new employees. Now, in January, Inverness finally defaulted on its bonds by failing to make required monthly debt service deposit, which really kind of set in motion the, uh, the series of events that led to the Chapter 11 filing. Now, Chuck, you said that they want to resume accepting new residents. How long has it been since they were able to bring in new residents? Right. For most of the time since they defaulted last January, they haven't been able to accept new residents, which has only hurt their occupancy numbers and their bottom line further. Uh, they had a forbearance agreement with their bond trustee from around May through October of last year. And during that time, they were able to market to new residents. But they had to shut their doors again to new entrants once that agreement expired, and they haven't been able to bring in new, uh, any new residents since. So and the ultimate goal for this is a sale of Invernus's assets. How far along is that process? Well, they do have a sale teed up with uh, a company called Tulsa Hills Community, Inc., and that's a subsidiary of Covenant Living Communities and Services. Right now, that sale agreement is in the form of a stocking horse acquisition bid, which basically means another buyer can still come in and try to top Tulsa Hills' offer, presumably through an auction process that would be established through the Chapter 11 proceeding. All right, thanks, Chuck. Last but not least, I, I believe you're a first-time guest to the program, a participant, our editorial intern, Joy Yang. Joy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So... Joy, you have a very fascinating topic to talk about, cybersecurity in or with municipalities. Tell us a, a little bit more, because, you know, in the past few years, there's been a lot of cities that have started to experience cyber attacks and more specifically ransomware attacks. Can you explain how a ransomware attack works? Right. So one of the most popular cyber crimes against cities are ransomware attacks because not only are they easy for hackers to instigate, the potential payout for a successful ransomware attack can be huge. So the way a ransomware attack begins is that a hacker will send out a seemingly innocuous email that contains the malicious software as an attachment. The second that someone opens the attachment, the hacker takes over the computer system, encrypts the data, and effectively takes the entire system hostage. In return for decrypting the information, hackers will often demand a ransom that can range anywhere from tens of thousands to millions of dollars. Uh, in the past, hackers have attacked everything from court systems to hospitals. And even just last Friday, four school districts in Louisiana were attacked, which caused Governor John Bell Edwards to declare a state of emergency. So while these attacks might be happening online, their real-life impact can be quite substantial. Obviously, this is very serious. Do these cities usually end up paying the ransoms to regain access to their files, or are they able to deal with the issues themselves? 
Right. Well, see, that's one of the dilemmas that cities often have to go through when they're hit by a ransomware attack. Um, they have to think, do they want to pay the ransom or not? So the FBI has actually suggested against paying the hackers because they believe that this will only incentivize them to keep attacking. Um, and three weeks ago at the U.S. Conference of Mayors, Mayor Young of Baltimore was even able to pass a resolution that called on cities to not pay the ransom. More than 200 mayors signed the resolution. So the city of Baltimore itself was actually hit by a ransomware this May. And the hackers had demanded $75,000 in return for the key to decrypt the city's computer systems. However, the mayor refused to give in to the demands, which ended up costing the city of uh, which ended up costing the city a total of $18 million, $10 million for decrypting and restoring the system, and another $8 million in lost rental fees, taxes, and tickets. However, most municipalities just don't have the resources or funds that Baltimore has to deal with these cyber attacks on their own. Shutting down its system for even just a few weeks could be financially detrimental. As a result, more and more cities are looking towards cyber insurance. That way, in the event of a cyber attack, the city will be able to pay off the ransom and resume business as usual. Just earlier this month, two cities in Florida paid hackers a total of more than a million dollars for the key to decrypt their computer system. However, giving into ransom demands are just a short-term fix. Utilizing it causes premiums to increase for insurance, and oftentimes, insurance companies are unwilling to pay out. And even worse, what happens if the city is attacked again? Then, therefore, the only feasible long-term solution for cities to stop these attacks is to increase their cybersecurity. However, the real question is how. So, Joy, a couple more questions around this. First, with the cyber insurance. Has there been any discussion about the potential moral hazard to having cyber insurance because as a someone is learning more about the issue it seems while having insurance is a good thing it almost it, it doesn't seem to encourage a solution in terms of how do we get to the point of not uh having cyber attacks right so that is a problem that is also being discussed right now by a lot of the municipalities because um a lot of the smaller municipalities are unable to afford the cybersecurity that they need. And as a result, they're more willing to invest in cyber insurance. However, because they have cyber insurance, they're also more willing to pay the ransoms that hackers demand. And as a result, this can turn into a loop where hackers are more likely to attack municipalities because they know that uh, these cities will pay the ransoms. And it also decentivizes a lot of municipalities from increasing their cybersecurity if they know that they have uh, the insurance to fall back on. So Joy, is underreporting an issue with these cyber attacks or is there any uh, data on that? Right. So a lot of uh, cities that are being attacked don't want to reveal all the information that has happened uh, during these attacks because they believe that this will uh, incentivize hackers to increase the cyber attacks. However, at the same time, by underreporting what's happening uh, during these attacks, it's also harder for uh, municipalities to uh, understand the severity of this issue. 
All right, thanks, Joy. And just one point of clarification, you mentioned Mayor Young, and that's Mayor Bernard Jack Young uh, of Baltimore. So Baltimore's been in the news for other reasons, but that's beyond the scope of our show. So thanks, everybody, for listening to the podcast. want to thank all of our participants. want to give a special thanks to our podcast producer. Like I always say, Andrew Cosentino, always make sure that our mics sound right. Hope you enjoyed it. Look forward to coming back at you again next week. Take care.